Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Kia ora and welcome to Our Changing World on RNZ National with Alison Balance and Veronica Maduna. Now on Our Changing World, cheaper and greener solar panels. Current solar panels are based on silicon, but with demand for solar energy on the rise globally, researchers are investigating other materials to produce a new generation of photovoltaic cells. Just imagine a flexible material that could be woven into fabrics, or a photovoltaic coating that people could spray on their homes. Jonathan Halpert, a device chemist at Victoria University of Wellington, tells Veronica about some of the nanostructured materials he's exploring in his lab. Lab coats. So just to give you sort of the basic tour, uh, this is our clean area where you can work without gloves. Everything else is beyond that is dirty. Uh, so what we do is we build these nanomaterials, novel nanomaterials, using the kinds of science that we're familiar with, and then use these materials to build essentially a better mousetrap. But in this case, it's a better solar cell. <laughs> so we're talking about new generation solar cells, not based on silicon as That's we right. know them. So in fact, this is well beyond the generation of silicon. And if you look at technologies that exist today, most of the panels that you see produced are silicon. There are some thin film materials, things like cad sulfide and cad telluride. Um, and then there's also some newer, what they would think of as uh, more novel materials, things like SIGs, CIS, CZTS, those are copper, indium, gallium, sulfide, and selenides. Uh, and those can also be purchased now as thin film panels, uh, but there are all these expense issues. Indium, gallium aren't particularly uh, common. They um, all sound to me at extremely least, toxic. Yeah, I was going to say, as uh, rare or so, toxic materials. That's right. It's really a question of availability. That is, how much material can you really get, right, if you're going to sell so many of these? And then what is the, how is the price going to change of this material? How is the availability going to change for this material if it really winds up being adopted? Silicon is great because it's everywhere on the sand on beaches, um, but you have to process it to a very high degree. The cost of that has gone down magnificently, which is why silicon is now becoming a competitive technology with other sorts of power generation, even on the massive you know, industrial scale power generation. But as we look forward, there are other sorts of um, places where we'd like to generate energy. There are other kinds of energy generation that we'd like to get, things like semi-transparent windows or flexible generators, things that you would put on your car, that you'd put on your clothing. So when we look to the future, which is where, you know, research is always 10 years ahead of where industry is going to wind up going. So we're looking at problems that we want to solve 10 years from now and how these materials, what kinds of properties these materials have to have. And flexibility is one, non-toxicity is another, uh, low cost and availability are others that we'd like to bake into the equation of how we design these materials. Greener production? What the Greener production is part of it too. We don't really get the chance to deal too much with the industrial side of, uh, you know, we're, we're desperate to make the thing and uh, we find the best, fastest pathway to do that in the lab. Um, but ultimately, we, people will want to think and engineer. When you take this out of the lab and you start thinking about commercialization, people will want to engineer sort of the solvents that we use, uh, the materials that we're using for both cost and uh, toxicity availability, kinds of solvents, what we're releasing into the atmosphere, how dirty the site is going to be if you build a factory out of this stuff. So if you're working with, say, lead, that can be a disaster for both the workers and the factory itself becomes a, uh, well, in the U.S., we'd say a super fun site, but basically a toxic site. And if we want to avoid that, then we need to find materials at the beginning 
that sort of get around that problem. And that's what our lab is engaged in, although I won't say that we're hitting the holy grail quite yet. We're still using a lot of lead uh, for a number of different things. But we're learning, and it's the learning that gets us, I think, to the, uh, the end goal. On that path to the Holy Grail, though, you're looking right. particularly at a group of materials called perovskites. That's right. Can you introduce me to those? Sure. So a perovskite is just a crystal structure, and there are lots of different crystal structures. Crystal oh, so there structure, could be different materials making that's those right. crystals? Um, so crystal structure means how the atoms arrange themselves in a solid. And uh, if they arrange themselves into a crystal and solid, we can categorize those different crystal structures. It doesn't have anything to do with which atoms are necessarily in the crystal structure. So when you say perovskite, you're talking about a structure. We use it as shorthand for a very particular set of atoms that apply to our problem. When we say perovskite, we mean usually lead halide perovskites, and it's organic lead halide perovskites specifically. Why? What's interesting about them? Why should they make good materials for solar cells? It's a solid-state question, right? How the atoms, which atoms you have determines which orbitals those particular atoms are going to have available, how they're filled with electrons. When you start stacking them all together, you then get these complicated ways in which the orbitals essentially add to each other. Uh, and this creates states that exist and energies at which no states exist. And this sort of defines what we call a band gap. And that's the gap between sort of the ground states, which are filled when the material is not excited, and sort of these unfilled states in the uh, what we call the conduction band. When you light comes in, it can excite a charge from this valence band, the ground state, up to the excited state, which is the conduction band. And then that charge can actually move throughout the film. So it essentially becomes like a, almost like a free charge, although there's a lot of other physics that can kind of happen to it. So is this what you just explained to me? Is this about efficiency? Are those materials or the, the so crystal shapes actually, interested, interested because of that? So this affects efficiency quite a bit because the size of what we call that band gap determines which wavelengths of light we can absorb and then how much energy you're able to give to a charge when it falls to the bottom of that conduction band. You know, everything likes to go down in energy. When it falls to the bottom of the conduction band, it gets stuck for a very short period of time in which it can then either recombine or it could get trapped in, say, a state, like a defect state, and then perhaps it uh, recombines through that pathway, or it can freely flow through the material. And if the material is thin enough and the charge is moving with adequate uh, energy, it's able to get to uh, what we call an electron transport or a hole transport layer in the, these sort of sandwich-style devices. Those are like um, sort of the mayonnaise and the mustard <laughs> around the meat. <laughs> and once it get, falls into that, then energetically it's going to flow to the electrode. When it gets to the electrode, it gets captured as actual electricity. And what matters is how many of these electrons you get per the number of photons that have hit the uh, absorbing material, which is what the perovskite is. And then, of course, what the energy is of that electron by the time it hits the uh, electrode. What about the flexibility, and I'm thinking physical flexibility, in terms sure. of making panels or devices out of well, these Well, this is one of the things that we're really interested in, in new generation materials. So silicon is very brittle, of course, if you ever dropped... Uh, I don't know if you guys drop a lot of silicon wafers <laughs> regularly. Not too often, no. <laughs> okay. I dropped one, and it was a, a bad experience. But it's, it's almost for like glass, wafer, right? I'd yeah, imagine. for the wafer. Well, <laughs> they're expensive, so for me too. No, the, it's almost like glass, right? It'll, it'll shatter. And so it's very hard to... And there are ways to get around this. There are tricks you can play, mechanical tricks. Uh, you can use sort of more amorphous materials or even silicon nanoparticles. But these all have problems with efficiency. And so what we're interested in making are flexible materials that naturally can bend, and still they don't break. They're still able to sort of function in the same way they would have if they were just a flat, thin film. 
And so most of what we actually do is these flat, thin films, because that's a great way to test it. But we can put them onto plastic, bend the device, and squeeze it and watch it uh, sort of change. And hopefully, if we've done our job correctly, it's still functioning exactly the same way. And so this is why flexibility is kind of built into our kind of system. Uh, the other interesting aspect of these materials is we can deposit them, unlike silicon, where you have to grow ingots of silicon and then cut them. Uh, and then you have to purify them, you have to dope them properly to get exactly the, uh, the structure that you want. Our materials can just be sprayed down in sort of an aerosol, uh, or we can put them into a solution and just spread them down. Uh, we can even spread them like butter with a knife, in a method called the Dr. Blade method, which sounds like a sort of a bad horror film, but it's actually <laughs> a pseudo-respectable way of uh, depositing material. <laughs> yeah, so it's more like uh, spreading butter onto uh, toast than it is making what you would think of as a processor. And that was really the problem with silicon early on, is that the process is the same to making processors. And so you used to have this competition between silicon price, depending how processor prices were going up and down. Now that cycle's been kind of broken, uh, largely because of China's entry into the market. But we're still trying to make things really cheap, sort of spray on. And ultimately for us, what we'd like is flexible materials that are non-toxic, that we can simply spray onto a surface and make energy generation wherever we'd like to have it. If we have something like that, it's going to be so cheap, you wouldn't worry about covering your entire house with it, right? You wouldn't think about it as, as an investment. It would simply be part of the material landscape. And if everything's making electricity, well, we need much less of the other kinds of generation, things like fossil fuels. Now, you mentioned a few things, like a sandwich structure ah, and right. all sorts of other things. Can you actually walk and talk me through how you make these things? Absolutely. Because you are making them from scratch in this lab. So we have to make the nanomaterials or the nanostructure materials, the thin film materials that we want to, which means we need to put together precursors. So we just buy bottles of chemicals from Aldrich. Uh, then we use those to make precursor materials. We can then make, uh, say, nanomaterials with uh, some solution chemistry. Then we take a piece of glass. That's like the bread. Uh, on top of it is a transparent conductive oxide, which sounds a little complicated, but it's really just an electrode that you can see through. And we can get and N. And that's the butter? That's a, uh, well, what kind of sandwich are we making? <laughs> I think that's the mayo. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then on top of that, uh, we need to put down electron transport material, and we use uh, compact titania. And then on top of the titania, we put more nanostructured titania, but it's sort of porous, almost like... Um, the cheese, maybe? Yeah, it's the Swiss cheese, right? Actually, that's great, Swiss cheese. So uh, onto the Swiss cheese, we put some, uh, the meat. I'm sorry if you're vegetarian. <laughs> All my sandwiches have meat, I guess. And, uh, and that's really the absorbing material. And the absorbing material is the material the light is going to interact with. So everything else we want to be transparent or reflecting light back onto that uh, absorbing material. But the absorbing material needs to be essentially dark, right? And we'd like to hit... Uh, about 1.3 EV, which, if you think uh, in terms of nanometers, is going to be about 8 to, eight to 900 nanometers, which, if you think in terms of colors, is going to be very, very dark, dark brown or black, right? And uh, that means that the band gap is reasonably small, but it means we can capture a large percentage of the photons that essentially come out of the sun, right? And these are distributed among different wavelengths. So, of course, sunlight has, you know, blue, green, red components. We want to pick up all of that. That will excite electrons above the conduction band, uh, but then they fall back to the conduction band with about the energy of the conduction band, and that's about a volt, a volt point one. And that EV is actually related very specifically to the voltage that you get out of the device. Um, so then uh, on top of that, we need a hole transport material. So the titania was our electron transport material. Now we have a hole transport material, which we use spiroomitad, is a small molecule organic. Um, you can use some inorganic materials. You can use things like nickel oxide, some different nanoparticles, anything you want that will sort of uh, uh, transport holes. 
And then on top of that, we put a reflective um, contact, an electrode, usually silver or aluminum, maybe capped with silver. And what that does is it helps any light that escapes our absorber will bounce back through the absorber. So it gives us a second pass to absorb more light. To get as much as you can. Yeah, to get as much as you can. Because in solar cells, power efficiency is the name of the game. And uh, there are a few other efficiencies that are associated with solar cells, things like quantum efficiency, which tells you how many electrons you get out for the number of photons that get in. But it's not just about getting the electron out. It's also about at what energy you get that electron out, and that determines the voltage that the cell can provide. And then the voltage times the current, which is the number of electrons, gives you the power. That tells you the power that that cell will provide, and therefore whether it'll run your vacuum cleaner or not, right? And of course, that's what we're interested in. So we built our sandwich, we got more cheese on the top, and then I guess the electrode was uh, another piece of bread with, uh, I guess there's no bread on the top. If we package it, then there's bread. So uh, <laughs> one of the issues actually with these devices is the packaging. So I'll mention the top, the top bread, if you will, would be another piece of glass. And that's just to protect the entire thing uh, from air and water, which is an issue with some of the perovskites that we're specifically working on. Can you actually show me the finished product yeah. Yeah, or yeah. somewhere on the way to that? Uh, we can go mm -hmm. see some finished solar cells if you want to. Yeah, yep. that'd be great. Yep. All right. So uh, yep. here's the device, which you can see it's very dark, so it looks kind of dark brown. We uh, use this as the standard um, sound for irradiation. We simulated it uh, in the lab. So we got the um, uh, light through the glass to the, to the um, perovskite film. Yeah. So this yeah. this so little square uh, there is the actual yes, device. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's a device. So you can see, you can't see the transparent oxide film, but that's what this electrode is hooked up to. So the whole back plane is this transparent conductive oxide. And, uh, and here you can see the dark sort of silver electrodes. That's the top electrode. And so that completes the circuit by hooking the two together. Now this obviously could be made in any kind of size or shape when you were saying about the flexibility Yeah, so we can put it onto flexible plastics. We could put it onto any sort of hard substance that you would like to, whether it's flexible or inflexible. And so it doesn't just have to be a piece of glass. We work on pieces of glass because they're easy to obtain and they're easy to work with. But uh, ostensibly, you could put it onto fabrics, you could put it onto sheets of metal uh, as your bottom electrode. So I know people have done sort of aluminum foil, things like that. Um, and that's kind of, we don't play too many tricks because we're really interested in the science of how these things work. But I think it's the flexibility of the material really is one of the main selling points, particularly of this uh, material set. What about the efficiency? You mentioned earlier when we talked about the different peaks that different materials or different um, techniques are taking. Now, silicon's actually quite an old technology, but sure. silicon solar cells. Of course, silicon's a very well-developed technology. And uh, the name of the game with with silicon is removing defects from the material. And in fact, with almost all solar cell materials, because it's those defects, uh, essentially states that are inside that band gap uh, that permit recombination of the electron in the hole without getting the electricity out. So when that happens, you've efficiency. lost efficiency, right? Now, if you think of a, a, a quantum efficiency of 80%, then you've lost 20% of your charges. And that's usually the pathways by which you lose those charges. And I think crystalline silicon is up around uh, the high 20s for efficiency. And there's actually a physical limit to the efficiency that you can get, and that's around 32 33%, depending on your material and your band gap. That's due to the fact that you lose, through heat, essentially all the energy of the, the high-energy photons, shooting that electron well above the band gap, and then it falls down and, and essentially loses energy as heat to the edge, the band edge there. So for any material we have, we can look at the band gap and find a theoretical maximum efficiency. So 28% is pretty close to, or you know, is getting up to, you know, that theoretical efficiency for silicon. 
That being said, when you go to manufacture them, then you're making very large area panels. The larger the area, the more likely you're going to have some defects affecting things. You know, you have certain tolerances on that. So I think when you buy silicon, say, to install for a power plant, you're looking up around maybe 19% power efficiency. Usually we say if we can hit 1% or 2% in the lab, well, maybe that's a material that's worth looking at from a research perspective. And that is and, true for the perovskite already. Oh, well, ab oh yeah. absolutely. Oh, we're getting, we'll get to the perovskite. So 1% or 2%, we start getting interested, right? And uh, I worked on uh, actually quantum dots, so inorganic quantum dots before. And we were doing maybe 3 or 4%, and we thought we were very excited. And then um, uh, if you get up to around 10%, then you start thinking about, well, okay, this has a real shot of being a viable technology, and then you can start maybe raising money for commercialization, where you get attract a lot more attention to your technology. When you get to around 20%, then maybe it's time for the product to start going out the door, because you can sell panels around 14%, 15%, I think, for the panel. For the perovskites, it was actually a material people were developing for LEDs uh, back in the late 90s, and uh, it was a really fascinating material, but the efficiency of the devices they were making wasn't really very high. For these are for emission, sort of for television screens, things like that. And so I think it kind of it kind of fell out of favor for a little bit. Uh, then somebody started using it in a device type called a dye-sensitized solar cell, as the dye. And uh, they were looking at maybe 3 or 4% efficiency. And then uh, somebody kind of picked this up, and they bumped it up to 6 And suddenly it started getting a little bit of attention, and then, you know, in the next two years they were up to 11%. And uh, that's a really a huge leap in solar cell technology in a very, very short period of time. And uh, although we know the theoretical efficiency is going to look a lot like silicon, that still leaps and bounds closer to that. You know, the speed at which these technologies have been improving is partially a function of the massive amount of investment in energy research in the last five or 10 years, uh, and the number of people who are therefore looking in this space. However, even so, this is a massive improvement in efficiency in a very, very short period of time. Now people are reporting 20% uh, in the literature. It's likely they've done a little bit better in their own labs. And uh, you have a number of um, companies that are kind of trying to spin this out as a viable technology. It's really difficult for those frontline companies to succeed. So we'll see what happens. I think they're planning or hoping for products in 2017, 2018. Just from the history of solar cells technologies, it's probably likely to get bumped a little bit further. There are significant engineering challenges, but it's just amazing how quickly this has hopped up to 20%. And uh, almost anybody in their lab can get to about 12%, 13% fairly easily. So promising technology for... It's a very promising technology for research because everyone can make cells that work pretty well. Uh, and it's a very promising technology for commercialization in the future. There are, as I said, a few road bumps, though. The materials tend to degrade in water, air, under light, uh, so they have to be packaged properly, or we need to sort of chemically find a way to make these more robust than they are right now. Uh, one of the other problems is they contain lead, and lead seems to be one of the key ingredients uh, for making these things work properly. I was so, just going to ask you about the chemistry of not just in uh, the sure. perovskite case, but generally, you know, whether you can see a future that has energy-producing solar yep. panels of some kind with the cleanest possible chemistry, where there's no toxicity issues and sure. no rare materials issues. Sure. So, again, it's not simply a matter of toxicity, right? Silicon, in terms of toxicity, is great. In terms of abundancy, it's great. The problem with silicon is the processing takes a lot of energy to purify that material. We're trying to make materials that either sort of self-purify as you produce them or simply can function as dirtier materials with more defects. And one of the properties of the perovskite that makes it so appealing is it appears to have, there's a lot of speculation as to why this actually is, <laughs> but it appears to have this sort of self-healing property where when we make nanoparticles, they have shockingly few defects. 
And uh, for a lot of sort of nanoparticles of this material, um, you have to put another coat on it to sort of get the defects away from the actual active area of the material. Uh, for this material, you have really bright stuff coming out uh, with just the bare core. And that's something that we're really interested in. So we work a lot on sort of the photophysics of these materials because we want to learn how, why this material works so well, not just to improve the lead halide devices, but also to figure out, okay, can we make another material that has similar properties but perhaps doesn't use lead? And uh, there are a few candidates already. But again, there are issues with stability that need to be worked out as well. We're chemists, so we think we can solve those problems. And then we'll give it to some engineers. They'll work out all the defects. They'll play some tricks with the photonics, you know, get a little bit more light in there, play around with the optics a little bit, and then uh, hopefully it'll be, <laughs> it'll be something people can use. And then, uh, you know, to wrap it, wrap it back around to what we talked about, that then solves a massive problem, we hope, in the energy industry, something which is really cheap, really abundant, that you can spray down, essentially make energy-creating surfaces almost anywhere, and uh, hopefully add to our generation ability without building a big new power plant. That was Rutherford Discovery Fellow Jonathan Halpert, a lecturer at Victoria University and an associate investigator at the McDermott Institute. That's all for now, but you can stay in touch with us on Twitter at rnz underscore science. Kia ora mai. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.